You're listening to Everyday Emergency, a podcast from Doctors Without Borders. Welcome to Everyday Emergency. I'm Nick Owen from Doctors Without Borders, also known as MSF. Earlier in this series, we heard about the perilous journey hundreds of thousands of people are making each year to cross the Mediterranean and Aegean seas to reach Europe. The majority of people who are fortunate enough to survive this new odyssey make land on the shores of Greece's Dodecanese islands. From there, they are moved on to Athens, where the journey through Western Europe begins, a journey which for many is carried out on foot. Connor Kenny, a doctor from the west of Ireland, arrived in northern Greece in March 2016. He was on his first MSF mission to provide healthcare for some of Europe's most vulnerable people, in a camp on the Greek border with the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, in the village of Idomeni. Idomeni was the informal crossing point through which hundreds of thousands of refugees entered the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia in 2015. But in November, people were forced to camp there when the Macedonian government began shutting the border to certain nationalities. Once the border closed entirely in March, the site became a full-scale camp and an emblem of Europe's failure to manage the refugee crisis. Finally, at the end of May, a full-scale eviction forced everyone in Edomini to find another route through Europe. After the eviction, Connor moved on to Lesbos, an island four miles from the Turkish coast, to care for unaccompanied minors making the journey. The following is an account by Connor of his time in Greece. The words are read by James Brady. Stay tuned after the story when we'll be speaking to Connor about his first mission. It's approaching 7pm in Lesbos. The intense mid-afternoon heat scorches the desert. It feels like the ground is beginning to dissipate thanks to a light westerly breeze. I perch on an upturned wooden crate propped up by a blue shipping container waiting for my lift back to base. Staring into the distance I watch the beautiful orange glow of the sun setting over the hills surrounding the camp momentarily illuminating the few sparse wispy clouds which have formed into golden rivers in the sky. It signals the end of my mission. It has been a calm shift to end on. The contrast from day one in Idomeni is not lost on me. The camp for unaccompanied minors has been my workplace for the last six weeks. It is intense, but a different intensity to that of Idomeni. Working with children requires a different, more holistic medical approach. Education is a key part of the role I play. I'm continually surprised by their ability to understand basic medical concepts, theories such as rational antibiotic usage, which are often lost on adults. I reconsider whether I have properly said my farewells to the children I work with. I have purposely downplayed my goodbyes. Having observed the high turnover of people in the lives of these children, I'm aware of the effect that overstated goodbyes have on their emotional health. Craving a form of stability in their chaotic lives, I do not want to be part of the problem. A brief nod of my head towards their tents and salute of appreciation. Under my breath, I wish them the best of luck in the future. The gentle silence of the evening is broken by my lift turning into the gravel car park of the camp 
followed by a trail of dust swirling in the breeze. I load my kit in the boot, take my seat, and we drive back home through the twilight along the winding coastal road. The 45-minute journey gives me time to reflect on my time working in this corner of southern Europe. Immediately, my mind takes me back to Idomeni. Stark images of a grown, dishevelled man in his 40s in a colourful, stripy button-down shirt, black suit trousers and mismatching runners, devoid of dignity, pleading in desperation for help through a barbed wire fence. Or seeing my breath in the dim light of the consultation room whilst warming my stethoscope as I assess a Syrian child with a chest infection during a freezing night shift. Or the elderly woman praying for help during the Idomeni eviction. positive memories of my work are also powerful. Memories largely of hope in the face of tragedy. Hope fueled by a basic belief that their lives could be no worse than what they had just experienced. Hope seen in the eyes of mum and dad during a newborn check, in a tent in the middle of a waterlogged farmer's field. Hope in the hearts of families waiting to be smuggled into the unknown by faceless individuals with no safer way to travel. Hope in the eyes of resolute mothers waiting in the vaccination line, aiming to give their children every chance of a better life. Many characters who came into the clinics were unforgettable. The colour, culture, expressions, those who gave great energy to my day and variety to working here. In hindsight, the only difference to the typical British or Irish patient was the language, location and journeys it took patients to get here. There was the anxious mother with her teenage son, the young pregnant woman with her husband looking for advice, the man in his mid-fifties with heart disease who wouldn't stop smoking, and the elderly grandmother with arthritis in her knees needing pain relief. I have no idea what will happen to these people in the future. Needless to say, they will endure further politically driven heartache. It's my hope that Europe may eventually start to learn from the lessons of this migrant crisis and avoid the self-imposed catastrophe epitomised by the disaster in Itameni. Working in this environment reinforces that you're only as good as the people around you. To all the people whom I had the pleasure of working with through good times and bad and to those who followed me on this journey, thank you for your support. Finally, To the refugees I met, if Idomeni taught me one thing, keep your hope. The darkest moment comes before the dawn. Welcome to the podcast, Connor. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Nick. Uh, Pleasure. How does it feel to be back from Greece? Um, I'm glad to be home, to be honest. It's nice to be here with my friends and my family. And I'm back playing football with my local club and getting back into a, a normal life, a normal routine. The first story you wrote from Greece was pretty startling. You were talking about being tear-gassed in Idomeni, which is on the Greece and uh, former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonian border. Could you tell us a bit about how it felt to be in that situation in Greece? I mean, it was, it was an incredible experience because I, I never felt that this would have been part of the job. When you do get tear gassed, it's, uh, it's really hard to prepare for that. It's, um, it's an incredible feeling. It, it's really debilitating. But it's more the panic in the people around you, especially the, the refugees who were affected by it. 
it's the mass stampede and confusion and panic which tear gas generates um and and that would probably be my most abiding memory from the the tear gas attacks and you you also said that you saw women and children shot with with rubber bullets and in one case there was a was it a young boy who'd been shot in the head yeah that's correct at the time you you're quite focused on the actual patient and the the pathology and um i mean you don't really take time to take stock of the fact that this child has been shot in the head by a rubber bullet you're just more focusing on the the injury and the potential consequences um but i remember after the incident i mean that evening or the following day and and just looking back at just in absolute disbelief to to think that something like this could have happened to him and and several other children that that particular afternoon how how were people coping in that situation it created a huge um, sense of panic and it was only uh, spending more time in the camp and, and speaking to the refugees ab- about the incident, I, I realised that many of these had actually undergone uh, some chemical weapons attacks previous in Syria and they'd associated with any sort of gas like that as you know being something a lot more lethal than what we would perceive tear gas to be. Um, and um, that generated a huge, a huge panic. And I think with that, um, for the many of the, the refugees that particular day w- would have been injured by like crush injuries and things like that from falling and being caught up in a crowd. And um, I mean, for the refugees, obviously, it was, a, it was a difficult time. It brought back some bad memories. There were all sorts of echoes between what was happening in Syria and what was happening on this refugee route through Europe. This refugee exodus has sort of been the first exodus that's had 4G connectivity, meaning that despite the distances travelled, people are still connected to the places they've fled. Would you be able to describe what this duality of fleeing home whilst being connected to everything going on back in Syria meant for the refugees that you met? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a, ne- a really interesting dynamic and it's, it's definitely not something I considered before I went. Most of the refugees on the camp you know, would have had mobile phones, like you said, and would have been fully aware and informed about what was going on back home. Um, anytime there was any attacks or explosions, especially in the larger areas like Aleppo or Damascus or Homs, there would be a definite effect among certain populations within the, the camp in Edomani. In one particular occasion, which I wrote about, was um, a young man whose um, who's one of his relatives was, uh, was killed in a particular attack and had come in with a what we call an acute stress reaction. Um, and it was an incredibly difficult situation that he found himself in and, and also for his friends, incredibly distressing for them having to try and help manage um, this, this situation. Did you meet anyone that had a particular story of the route that they'd taken to get out of Syria or out of Iraq or out of Afghanistan that really sort of stuck in your mind? One particular woman who was there uh, with her three very young children, um, describing the stories of making the crossing to Greece where the boat actually capsized. And luckily enough, she was rescued. But the way she described the feeling of when she watched one of her children face down in the water that particular day, and uh, the feeling of that, she definitely thought her child was dead. Um, and the distress and sadness of everything that she'd gone up to that point, surviving what she had in Syria and the, the journey to get to the boats in, in Western Turkey, and then watching this unfold in front of her, I don't think she felt that like life could get any worse. But luckily, her and her children survived and, and they'd made it only to end up in a place like Edomani for months. That was a story that will always stick to me, um, how vivid she painted the picture while she watched her daughter face down in the water. Could you describe the camp in Edomani? 
Idomini camp itself was um, located in northern Greece on the Macedonia border. The camp was on a vast expanse of agricultural land, which was a natural drainage area for the surrounding mountains. It also was dissected by an international electrified railway line which connected Greece with the rest of Europe. Initially, it had been a transit camp, so a camp to hold refugees, maybe a couple of hundred refugees, for a 24 to 48 hour period as they made their way along the Balkan route through Europe. But obviously, when the border is closed, that camp of for a couple of hundred people then swelled pretty much in, in the space of three or four days to uh, 15,000. That's around the time when I arrived. Looking at it, it was a kind of a haphazard arrangement of tents in this vast expanse of agricultural land. And at the time when I arrived in March, the weather was quite cold, but not as cold as it had been um, in the months previous. It was also wet and water pooled naturally in this in this drainage area. There was also a number of um, hazards within the camp, obviously with the fact that it was an electrified railway line. There was lots of electricity pylons and um, diesel engines for the trains at the side of the tracks. Our clinic was very busy with, for example, lots of uh, upper respiratory tract infection because um, people were so exposed to the elements or, you know, diarrhea and vomiting. Um, and also because they all lived in such a confined space, uh, almost on top of each other. There's also lots of um, trauma within the clinic itself. And, and that would have been maybe from a result of children playing with stones on the, on the camp, or men getting quite frustrated with the conditions in which they lived in as well. Something I'll never forget was the, the image of the, the sun rising and the, and the sun setting in the camp. And Particularly when I used to do my, when I would do my night shifts that, um, if possible, if the clinic was quiet at around 5am or 6am, that I'd be able to go outside and just take a look at the sunrise over the mountains. And it was an incredible experience to see that beauty contrasted with the absolute um, horror which unfolded in front of me with uh, the conditions in which these refugees used to live in. And then later in your mission, you also went to a sort of a beautiful you know, holiday spot on Lesbos, didn't you? Yeah, exactly. Would you be able to sort of describe the, the difference between your work there and your work in Idomeni? There was a significant difference. Um, my role in Lesbos, in the island, would have been to work with unaccompanied minors. And the type of patients that would come in or the type of problems that the children would have had was very different to what my experience in Idomeni was. The camp in Lesbos is also a smaller camp of around 80 children, whereas in uh, Edomania, I think when we started working in the primary care setting, you would maybe have 60 or 70 people coming into the clinic during just one shift. Even just the environment in which the children lived, it was, it was not ideal, but it was certainly a lot less intense and hectic. It didn't have the same intensity and um that Edomani would have had. It was like chalk and cheese, the difference in the experience. That's not to say that uh, Lesbos was a particularly good experience for the refugees. It was just very, very different, the type of patients that I was dealing with. It's a striking amount of unaccompanied kids. Yeah. These children had experienced a huge amount to even get to this, to where they were now. There was lots of complex issues related, for example, to self-harm. So the frustration of being in the camper what they'd been through to get to this point. Many children use self-harm as a way of um, expressing their emotion. So a lot of uh, my time there would have been spent working with the, the psychologist and 
uh, various other groups, as well as, as trying to um, develop interventions in, in which to kind of support the children as best we can while they lived in, in this environment. Being an unaccompanied minor is stressful enough, but being in a camp during the, the most important years of their life, it definitely affects their development in later life. How young were some of some of these children? I think the youngest um, was around 13 years old. So at anything up 13 to around 17 years. So they were very, very vulnerable. Did any of them sort of tell you their story about how they managed to, to make that journey on their own? Yeah, I mean, some incredible stories on, on how many of them got had got here. Like, you know, a large amount of their journey might have been uh, on foot, you know, coming from Afghanistan to the way they describe going through various, or Pakistan, again, with smugglers uh, on foot through various mountain crossings through Iran, witnessing death of uh, people who would have been part of that journey as well. So who would have just kind of been left in the roadside um, until they get to Turkey, where they would have been maybe put in a safe house for a number of weeks. Well, not a safe house, but a, a, a house for a number of weeks while they are forced to work, while they waited for the opportunity to and cross into Greece. Uh, their stories are incredible. And for a child at that age to experience what they've experienced, is, um, it's, it's hard to believe. So this was your first mission with MSF. Do you think you'll be doing another mission? Yeah, I, I, th I think I will. It was a very challenging mission, but it definitely gave me an insight into uh, humanitarian medicine. And it's, it's something that I'm really keen to pursue with MSF. That's great. Thanks so much, Connor. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been great having you on the podcast. Cheers, Nick. Thanks very much. All the best. So that's it for the first series of Everyday Emergency. If you have any questions about anything you've heard in this podcast, make your way to msf.org.uk slash podcast and leave us a comment. We've also posted links to other stories written by Connor, as well as links to other articles and videos about MSF's work on the refugee route through Europe. We hope to be back with the second series in the new year and we'll be posting one-off episodes between now and then, so make sure to stay subscribed. If you've enjoyed listening to any of our episodes, we'd love it if you could help spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes. And finally, before we go, I'd like to say a big thank you to Joel Samatsi, who's been responsible for making these episodes sound the way they do. See you next time. For more true stories from the front line of medical emergencies, subscribe via your podcast provider or visit msf.org.uk slash podcast.